I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks. Whether you're a comic book reader, a fan of classic rock, or both, my guest today is both the writer of a new comic book and a professional in the music business. Jeff Rugby is the author of the revenge fantasy Gunning for Hits, being released through Image Comics January 9th, the day after David Bowie's birthday. Why is his proximity to David Bowie's birthday significant? Perhaps it has something to do with Jeff working at Rikodisc as their A&R and Special Projects employee. His first task was to obtain the rights to David Bowie's 1969-1980 through 1980 catalog of music. This led to Jeff producing the Grammy Award-winning Sound & Vision box set and remaining Bowie discs re-released for the first time with bonus tracks through Rikodisc. It was Jeff's experiences with David Bowie and his experience in the music business that inspired him to write Gunning for Hits. We talk about the book's artist, Moritat, and the excellent sequence in the first issue that explains record contracts. Even though they are not considered cool among music listeners today, why does Jeff think there will be a CD revival in the future like the vinyl one today? Why do bands re-record their most popular songs? Are they just double dipping? We both discuss the man, David Bowie, and of course, the fun questions that I ask all my guests. This interview is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So please join me and Jeff Rugby, author of Gunning for Hits, here now on Creator Talks. Jeff, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot we can talk about, but I want to start with your impressive resume. I just want to highlight a few things. You published Decatus Magazine, managed bands, hosted radio shows, oversaw the opening of the first CD-only stores in the U.S., and secured the rights to David Bowie's 1969-1980 catalog for Rika Records. Music has always been in your blood. So much so, you would spill blood just to buy records back in the 80s. So tell me about spilling blood and what music made you go to that length? You know, that's a good question because um, what you're getting at is that I used to uh, give blood at, uh, gosh, I can't even remember, Red Cross or something. <laughs> you could give blood and they would give you five bucks for a pint or something. And you'd use that to buy records. And you could only do it, I think, once a week or once every 48 hours or something. And it wasn't any specific records necessarily. It was just I wanted to get more records and there were lots of things coming out and you couldn't preview them like you can now with you know Spotify or look something up on uh, YouTube or whatever. And so there were all these sort of mysterious records that didn't get played on the radio and I wanted to hear them because the covers look cool or you know I read something about them. That's what did it. That was an exciting period because there was a discovery involved. You said you couldn't just go to iTunes or Spotify and listen to something to get a sample of it. You didn't have a whole lot to go on. If you didn't hear it on the radio, you either had to hear it word of mouth or through a friend in school, you know, somebody who was willing to take a risk on those albums. And, you know, we're, we're kids back then, relatively. It's expensive. It's a lot of money. Absolutely. And the other thing about it, you know, which is not relevant in today's world, is that there was that whole record shop culture. You know, you go into a record store and 
people would play stuff that they were into. We were working behind the counter and that would turn you on to things. And then you'd have to go sell more blood. Um, but the, but the other thing is uh, you couldn't always find the records. So, you know, you, I might read a review of some great record and spend a whole day driving around and hit 20 or 30 stores and still not be able to find it. It wasn't easy for me to find Bauhaus back then, uh, you know? <laughs> right. You were a musician performing as a vocalist in two punk bands, Crawling Smash and Gumby Brothers. You know, <laughs> did you take the stage and say, I'm Gumby, damn it? That would be very punk. I think it was before that. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Before that, the SNL bit. So what did you learn about both the exhilaration and disappointment that comes with performing live and the business end of the music industry as a performer? Not so much about the business end because uh, that's not why we did it. One of the best pieces of advice about making music that I've ever heard is from Paul Westerberg, who said, if you're going to be in a band, be in a band with your friends, because if it doesn't work out, you'll still have had fun playing with your friends. What you learn about the music business is that it's very random. You can talk about pouring tons of money into marketing and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, cannot necessarily manufacture luck. So certain things happen and some, you find a fan out there somewhere who likes a record and then all of a sudden, you know, you're off to the races. Um, the exhilaration of performing, and I was terrible, you know, was just that whole connection with people and music and, you know, having fun with your friends. And sometimes the audience outnumbers the band and that's still okay because you still got to do it. You know, you're so right about that. I mean, even with knowing all the data, you still have to find a way to connect with the audience, find your audience and connect with them. And part of that's luck too. You have to be at the right place at the right time. And for performers, sometimes it's just not the right time. Sometimes they're ahead of their time. Sometimes that works out in the long run if they finally connect with the audience and then, wow, look at that music they performed, David Bowie, that still holds up today. Let's talk about your book coming out on January 9th through Image Comics, Gunning for Hits. It's described as a music thriller, a revenge fantasy for all the songs that should have been hits. And by your career in the music business, drawing from your experience working with David Bowie, you have a heck of an artist working for you on this book, Moritat. Because the story is set back in the 80s and 90s, when labels had lots of cash, and there's this whole music business that was very corporate, and you get into the book and criminal. So it's not going to be pastel, hazy 80s, you know, unstructured jackets, fun, lightness. It may be except for the covers. And I've seen the cover of one, which is very much David Bowie, Serious Moonlight Tour looking Bowie. A great cover. Thanks. There's just so much to get into here. Let me just start with Moritat, like I started to. His art seems to be a very good fit for the book, given the nature of the story, being not all lightness and sweetness, but also I read the first issue and that sequence going through explaining contract negotiation. I love that. That is so good. Please tell me about working with your artist. This is interesting because that section, we talked a lot before he started drawing it and he did some layouts and stuff. And I was like, you know, I, I had an unstructured script because I had an artist before Justin uh, Moritat came on board and um, he flaked out on me. He and I had discussed working with this sort of unstructured script. I mean, it was basically dialogue and put it where you want to, and it was going to give him some freedom to do it. But I realized when I handed the script over to Justin that I had like a certain type of pacing in mind. I'm an art school dropout. Um, I did two years and got out before it drove me crazy, but I did a, a bunch of rough layouts for him, which, you know, I told him, don't really use these for anything except the pacing, the panel breakdowns. And that's worked out really well. He 
radically improves on everything I draw. But it's funny because I wanted to do that sequence that you're talking about where you explain the music business in a completely different style from the rest of the book. And part of that came from, I don't know if you've read uh, Parker, the Darwin Cook Parker books. Yes. But he explains some heists and how they work in one of the books. And he sort of uses these similar sort of cartoony, big head type characters. And so I sketched all that out and sent it to Justin. And he was like, this is practically there anyway. And of course, he improved it a lot. But it's it's pretty similar to what I uh, what I drew out. And the reason we broke it out is because uh, we wanted to make an explanation of how the music business works fun to read rather than tedious. There are definitely textbooks on the subject, <laughs> but I didn't want to do a textbook. It was so much fun to read, and you explained a lot about where the money goes when a CD is sold. Like People think, oh, those stars are raking in all this cash. Um, no, not so much when you see how it's broken down. That's very true, yeah. To a certain extent, there are some artists who you know would get a higher royalty than a new artist, but even there, the chunk that they're getting is a relatively small chunk. So, yeah, especially back then, too, you know, the CD royalty ultimately adjusted to be a little more favorable. But, yeah, in the beginning, it was pretty brutal. I understand today that for a lot of bands, they're not making that much money on CD sales. I mean, there's a lot of streaming now. They probably get a cut of that. But a lot of it comes from the live performances, the touring. That's really what sustains them now. Yeah, I mean, I think for certain acts, there's certain artists that maybe have an older audience. I mean, you know, Bowie falls into this category, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily of, uh, you know, older, but um, just that they are so devoted that they want to own the physical thing. You know, that's still out there. But um, of course, you know, CDs are considered pretty uncool right now. Um, um <laughs> I think just like we've had this swing back to vinyl, you know, we're going to have a swing back to CD because great as streaming is in terms of accessibility, if you really want to hear something that sounds great, CD's the best format. It's not always done right, which is why people have complaints about it, but there are just as many complaints about badly done vinyl. So that I think we're ultimately people are going to go, you know, I really want to hear this the way they heard it in the studio or close to it. And um, I want to hear all the detail that you can't get, at least at this point, through streaming. So we'll see what happens. But I have some faith that that's going to turn around. I think you're right. I concur because I listen to a lot of MP3s. I would download stuff through iTunes and so forth and also play things through Bluetooth. And then one time I just I grabbed a disc and put it in instead. And I was like, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> I've been missing a lot. I forgot how much information was contained on the CD. I mean, you could do it with a high-res digital file, but for convenience sake, when you go out and pull out those CDs, which I still like because the vinyl, people like it in some cases because it's warmer, mm -hmm. and, but you also have the issues with surface noise and you just can't get around that. But like you were saying, a lot of it is the mastering. How good is that recording? How well is it mastered? Because you can have a great recording, a great medium to play it back on. But if the mastering isn't done correctly, it's overcompressed, what have you, it ruins it. And fortunately for a lot of music, in some cases with the right people, example, the Beatles' White Album that just came out, re-released, incredible job of opening up the soundstage. Now you've taken something, regardless of the medium, it's going to sound better. But so a lot of it has to do with that collaboration between the musician and those in the engineering room. That's really true. And I, and I think there's also a part of it that people discount. I think it's really true is that, you know, let's say the first time you heard Scary Monsters and you listened to it a hundred times was on a cassette. In your head, the way that cassette sounded is the way that your 
hoping that the CD is going to sound, but it's going to be different because the CD has more room. So there's definitely a, you know, sort of an imprint from your history with a certain piece of music. And then there's also a personal preference. There are some things that I actually like when they really blow up the volume. It sounds better to me. And that's not true of everything. Um, but there's definitely cases of certain types of music where it really gives you more. Absolutely. Going back to gunning for hits, it's a story you've pretty much spent your entire life preparing for, your, especially your professional life in the music business, to write. Drawing heavily from real-world music business experience and some of the personalities that you've worked with. Describe for me how your business experience makes you uniquely qualified to write such a thriller. Well, I think, you know, uh, in the same way that if you were going to do a TV show about uh, pool cleaning, you'd want to hire a pool cleaning expert, you know, someone who'd been inside the world of pool cleaning. I realize that's a pretty boring example, but a lot of the music fiction that I read, and there isn't much of it, is pretty bad. And even the, you know, the TV and movie side of it, it's, they always sort of go to the same cliched stuff. Lots of drugs and groupies and, and all that. And I just got very encouraged. I started thinking about the story in 89 when I first met David. And over the years, you know, we've seen this sort of explosion of this, you know, golden age of television or whatever with, you know, the Sopranos that shows you the inside working of a mafia group and uh, Breaking Bad that shows you, you know, the inside workings of a meth lab. And then all these other shows like Ballers or there's just tons of them that really get into the nitty gritty of the work and still have drama and uh, a lot of compelling stuff. So because I've been doing it so long, I think I've got a unique perspective, at least amongst the comic book writers, from being inside the machine so I can write about it with some knowledge. I want to digress just a bit since we're talking about writing uh, stories about music. What did you think if you saw it, the series Vinyl on HBO? <laughs> so it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So one of the things that really compelled me to finally get around to writing Martin's story was, you know, this lack of good music fiction. But the other thing was, you know, David died. He'd always been, as he was for tons of people, you know, an inspiration in terms of challenge yourself and keep pushing forward and don't get stuck in a rut. Um, and I'd always had this dream of doing a comic book. So, you know, he died and I thought, I need to do this. And, um, and then I was in Canada a couple of months later. I was in Quebec City, actually, and looking at all of the great French albums, right? And uh, no, I don't mean vinyl records, but the comic albums. And uh, it was the day the last episode of Vinyl aired. Sorry, this is taking me a long time to get there. <laughs> but uh, I'm standing in front of these albums and I see there's a whole series in France about the IRS. And I'm like, OK, if there can be a whole series about the IRS, you know, forensic accounting, then there's room for the music business. And it was funny because I went home and I watched that episode of Vinyl um, and I really didn't like that series. People that I admire put their names on it. I don't know how involved they were, but uh, man, it just felt like a big mess. Like, you know, <laughs> too, many, too many things trying to happen at once. It was like, it was like they were trying to put all of the seventies into like one week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it really felt claustrophobic. It didn't really ring true to me. And there's just way, there's way too much going on, I think, for anyone to really sink their teeth into any one part of it. I wanted to like it. I never actually finished it. I couldn't get my wife to go back to finish it. 
was what really bothered us was besides it being a bit of a mess with the storytelling is that they'd have these musical interludes, these cutaways, someone playing music, like really freaking loud. And it would just be so much louder than the rest of the show. It would like blow us out of the house. And it was just like, let's put this cool piece in there. Bam. And it didn't seem germane to the scene. So that kind of just threw me. It's like they were trying to do too much. Like you said, jamming too much of all the 70s in a week. It just seemed really, some of the things seemed rather forced. I share your experience of um, not having my wife want to watch the rest. <laughs> the- <laughs> I did like the last four or five episodes by myself. But yeah, you know, the other thing too is it is hard to do music fiction. And we that's something that Morita and I talked about a lot too. Um, you know, you, you throw a guy in a David Bowie suit into the thing and you try to pass him off as david bowie and it brings you out of the reality of the show Mm. Mm -hmm. and i and i know what they're trying to do is they're trying to say no this is real here's the new york dolls and all these other people that they jammed in there but the truth is you know it's not them it doesn't feel like them and then authenticity is out the window and you know the music industry may not be a place where authenticity is valued a lot, but in music, authenticity is valued a great deal. So if you don't have that, you're already screwed, I think. Something else about Gunning for Hits. Now, it's said that it's a revenge fantasy for all the songs that should have been hits. <laughs> Were there some songs that should have been hits back in the 80s and 90s that come to mind for you? As a music insider, do you have any examples you could cite of ones that didn't work out and why? Gosh, there's millions of them. Um, the replacements catalog. Who's could do? You know, I mean, there are Prince songs that should have been huge hits um, that weren't. So, you know, again, you know, music's so personal. Everybody, and I think this goes for all art, everybody has a favorite comic book that didn't sell and got canceled, a favorite song that they don't understand why it wasn't a hit, a movie that they loved that tanked at the box office. So, you know, the reason that we call Gunning for Hits a revenge fantasy for that is that the main character in the book has sort of figured out a way outside the traditional workings of the music business to to make things hit and to have them sell. But um, yeah, there's so many songs going into the 70s, you know, all the big star stuff and why weren't the raspberries bigger? There's tons. Now, another force behind this story, another influence was your experience with David Bowie. And I understand it has more to do with his albums from the 80s and some of his disappointment expressed later about some of those albums in retrospect. So tell me how David's worked into this, just in spirit. Well, so he did feel that he lost his way in the 80s. And in one of our earliest face-to-face meetings, he talked about how pleased he was at the end of the Glass Spider tour to take the set into a field in New Zealand and burn it. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, he was already on to Tin Machine and trying to find ways to challenge himself. But I think he recognized that maybe Let's Dance, you know, could fall on either side of the coin, depending on how you feel about it. There's some songs on that record that I really like, but I think as an album, it's actually, even though it's one of his biggest selling, if not his biggest selling record, that it's sort of a a lazy record for him, kind of. It's only... It's only eight songs and, you know, there's a couple of covers and, uh, you know, and then tonight 
he later, his quote about tonight was, I just wanted to keep my hand in. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> he wasn't really excited about the record and definitely shows. And then Never Let Me Down, I think he thought was going to be that artistic turnaround moment. And for whatever reason, you know, he started with the concept and an idea that they were going to make this record in a really short period of time. And um, it was going to be this sort of return to rock thing. And it ended up being, by his own admission, this bloated concept and overproduced album and he then had to go out and tour it for a good chunk of time for someone like david who got easily bored that format of a real rigid choreographed broadway style show i'm surprised he didn't know already and as, as interested as he was in theatricality uh, that he would become bored with it very quickly. And, and that is what happened. And by the end of the tour, I think he was just so glad it was over and he didn't have to do it again, <laughs> that he lit it on fire. You know, I look back at that catalog now, see how it holds up over time. And it is a very personal thing. For me, Let's Dance stands out as the best of the bunch because I was in my senior year of high school. It means more to me. And that's when I kind of got into the whole Bowie catalog and listened to everything he did at that point. That was kind of the jumping in point for me. And tonight... That was like October of 84, and that was a bit of a disappointment because it was, I'm not sure what it was. It was a bit of a mess. Like, some of the stuff that he did with Iggy Pop, like Big Boys and Neighborhood Threat, was cool, and it was almost like the album could go one direction. But then there were other songs that were just kind of covers put in there. The best one, I think, was Loving the Alien, but then there's nothing else in the album like that. starts off so strong like ah here's the creative david here's the genius and then you don't hear anything like that again yeah it's a weird record and he, he never should do reggae <laughs> <laughs> no tumble and twirl huh yeah no and uh, and even tonight the, you know yeah the yeah. song of the record is, yeah. yeah you know you also have to put that whole thing into context in terms of where he was at personally the first time that he was taking in all the money from his music was with Let's Dance. So that was very compelling to him. And he wanted to buy his catalog back. It's a whole, you know, there's a whole huge story there. I listened to Never Let Me Down, the, it's not a remix, it's a re-recording. You know, Reeves Gabriel on guitar and the drummer and bass player for his most recent albums. And some songs sound better. I think Zeros is probably the most improved and Time Will Crawl, of course, and some just still didn't really improve at all, like Glass Spider. Like, I thought my player stopped playing because I didn't hear anything for a good several seconds <laughs> for like half a minute. <laughs> 87 and Cry or New York's in Love just didn't really sound any better. And I understand that 
really the only one David heard before his passing, I think, was Time Will Crawl. That was on iSelect that he actually assembled, put together the songs on that iTunes album. I've never sailed on the sea. I would not challenge a giant. I could not take on the church. Till the 21st century looks. I know a government man. He was as blind as the moon and it. He saw the sun in the night He took a top gun pilot and he, he made him fly through a hole Till he grew real old and he, And he never came down He just flew till he burned Yeah. The rest was kind of based on a conversation he had with Reeves about redoing the album, maybe at some point what could have been, maybe having strings. And so he never heard the finished product of that remastering, re-recording of that album. You know, I don't know how I feel about that because I want to see something or hear something that David had a hand in, like the Lodger remix from last year I thought was phenomenal. And he heard it and approved it, and that's what he wanted from the outset when he recorded it and just didn't have the equipment and studio time to make the sound as open as he wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on recordings of any deceased artist re-recorded and then marketed? Is there a line that we should never cross? Because David, in terms of rock and roll, I heard an interview once, he's like, there's no limits, there's no line. But with this, is there a limit to what we should do? What obligation do we have to the artist? Well, you know, it, it is a Pandora's box of questions, you know, in terms of the ethical nature of it. But David initially was very not into remixes. And it took the Pet Shop Boys doing Hello Space Boy to make him actually pay attention to that. There were plenty of remixes that were put out in the 80s as that latest box will will let you know in painful detail and they even left a bunch of them off because i think there's only so many versions of some of those songs you can hear um yeah i mean look i think everybody can recognize it is what it is they want to put something in these boxes to make people feel compelled to buy them the lodger remix i think was like you said, a really good improvement and, and he had his ears on it. The never let me down thing seems to me like, I know he felt the record went sideways and that there may have been a better version of it in it somewhere. And he actually, whenever he talked about it, he talked about songs. So I don't know that he ever really felt like, oh, this album needs to be reassessed. I think, you know, there were some songs where you felt like they could have been better versions. But, you know, it almost, particularly in this case, it almost draws attention to his shortcomings rather than his real talent by going back to a record that he himself said, this is the weakest thing in my catalog, and trying to make it 
better. And it's not the first time it's been done. I mean, there have been other artists who left behind, you know, demos or whatever, and they've brought in bands. I mean, Hendrix, I think, in the rock era is sort of where it started because uh, there were a couple albums that came out in the, the 70s after he died that weren't finished records. And they brought in all these like really slick studio guys to back up some stuff that he'd recorded. And um, those records actually almost ended his legacy. And it wasn't for a, a few years until after that that, you know, he was really able to reclaim it by putting out some strong stuff that hadn't been released before. I see what you mean by drawing attention to some of the flaws and weaknesses. Like I've heard that Paul Simon is re-recording a lot of his albums, reinterpreting those songs. And to me, like, it was done at a certain time, during a certain time period, and it's best just to kind of leave it alone. Don't get all, like, George Lucas on it. <laughs> you know, like, don't, like, obsess over it and keep changing and changing and changing. It is what it is. With David, one of his greatest strengths was when he would do a live performance. I saw him several times. He would do a different interpretation of a favorite hit or something that was like a deep album cut, but he would do it a little differently. So mm -hmm. every concert was like a different recording. So that was his opportunity to make something better or give a different flavor to it based on his audience, the time he's in, and giving it more thought. That's, I think, the best place to do it. And then put on a live album. But these re-recordings, the only one I've heard that I really liked was one by Squeeze. They re-recorded a lot of their hits. And I generally don't, have you heard that? Like, uh, yes. Spot the Difference? Yeah. That's pretty good. I like that. So it's interesting because I can't necessarily speak to what Squeeze's rationale behind doing it was, although I think this is the case. So with a lot of artists, their best known records, their classic records are owned by record companies, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll get these bands will get directly approached by, let's say, somebody who's doing a TV commercial for something. And actually, my wife licenses music for TV commercials. And I'll give you a good example. So ELO got approached to um, have Mr. Blue Sky be in a commercial. And I can't remember what it was for, Volkswagen maybe or something. ELO said, yeah, we're into it. And they went to the record company and the record company wanted more money than the ad agency was willing to pay. Uh -huh. So Jeff Lynn said, um, tell you what, I can re-record it for X amount of money and, <laughs> and uh, you don't have to deal with the record company. So it's a small industry. Like I know Kiss, you know, of course, they re-recorded all of their hits because they wanted to have masters that they owned that they could license to film and TV and commercials and not have to give a chunk to the label that uh, originally recorded them. So I think the squeeze thing might have been done for that reason. But if it's the original artist doing it, you can't say it's wrong because it's them doing it. It's kind of like at Ryko, we put re-released a bunch of the Zappa Mothers of Invention era records um, early on on CD. And Frank had remixed them. There was a lot of criticism about the remixes. And the president of Ryko had a really great response, which was, look, if Van Gogh decides he wants to paint the ear back on, who are we to say he's wrong? <laughs> if Zappa does it or Squeeze does it or Kiss does it or whatever, it's, you know, at least their hands are on the wheel. And just to come full circle, Squeeze did open for Bowie during the Glass Spider tour, by the way. <laughs> wow. The show I remember on that tour was uh, out here. He played at Foxborough Stadium, whatever it was called back then, and a local band, The Neighborhoods who uh, he really liked, they opened for him. Oh, okay. Uh, that was in front of 
more people than they probably played to for the rest of their career. It was like 70,000 people or so. Yeah, I saw him in that stadium in Philly, and he had Squeeze open up. And it's the only Bowie t-shirt that I have. I gave it to my sister. She gave it back to me, so I still have that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see him on the Let's Dance tour? Because that's the first time I saw him. You know, I kicked myself. I didn't. And here's what happened. I was in high school. I wanted to go. And I waited, and they just had obstructed viewing and single seats. And I said to my best friend, let's go. And he's like, oh, I don't want to go, obstructed seats. And I said to my girlfriend, let's go. She goes, I don't want to go, obstructed seats. So I didn't go. And I was like, I really wanted to go. So when Glass Spider came around, I'm like, I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. I waited four years. I'm going. I wish I'd hit the uh, Serious Moonlight tour, but I'm glad you had a chance to see that. I've watched the video of it, the HBO special, whatever it was, many times. Great show. Yeah, that was a great tour. Fantastic. I loved it so much I like recorded it off a of TV, like on a cassette player. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. Any kind of like a simulcast or radio broadcast, I would record Bowie's stuff like Serious Moonlight. I know I recorded his 1990s Sound and Vision tour off the radio, and I did see that too in Philly. And that mm. was a great show because after Glass Spider and I saw him do Tin Machine when he was promoting the second album, which was a great show up in Philadelphia as well. And then Sound and Vision. I was so excited about Sound and Vision. <laughs> I was all pumped. My friend was going with me. Got subs. We ate subs. Drove up there. Yeah, let's go. I give him my ticket. I walk through the door. Hold on. Wrong day. <laughs> oh, jeez. I had to come back the next day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's how excited I was. Wow. I've never wow. made that mistake again, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but back to talking about artists' work being remastered, monkeyed with. What do you think about the use of a hologram because I've seen this done of the deceased performer with a live band my god is that going to happen with Bowie personally I hope not because it's not the same obviously I just I just can't get into that yeah I don't envision that happening with Bowie I mean you know it's weird there's certain things that I think he felt pretty fast and loose about and then there's other things that he was more protective of just knowing some of that stuff it seems really unlikely to me that anything like that would ever happen and I think he'd be interested in the technological aspect of it but I don't think he would like the idea of it representing him especially if it was manipulated. I think, you know, if they make a concert, well, you've got the Glastonbury show coming out in a few weeks Mm -hmm. or maybe even days. That show is amazing and was filmed and it'll be great to have that. But the idea of actually programming a hologram of him to do a performance that wasn't a real performance, that just seems like a step too far. Well, you've met him, you said the first time in 1989. Did you feel that you got behind the performer the facade, because he had different personas that he used in the 70s. And by the 80s, he was kind of stepping away from that. So do you feel you got to know him more authentically? Who was Bowie to you? I should clarify. So we first started talking in 89, and we actually met the first time on the opening night of the Sound Division tour, which happened to be my birthday. Oh, <laughs> So it was a pretty good birthday. Um, and it was up in Quebec City strangely enough. He was very interested in music and art, and so was I. So we could talk about that stuff. And it's funny because I knew him just as he was getting to 
no Iman ended up marrying and totally disproving every cliche about a rock star marrying a supermodel. <laughs> they were they were really happy together, uh-huh. you know, it worked out great. But I've read some interviews with her where she was like, oh, he'd be talking about art at dinner. And I just tell him to shut up because, you know, he didn't know what he was talking about. And, uh, and it was funny because we'd have conversations about a lot of it sprung from magazines. So we'd talk about like things that we saw in Arch Forum or, and there were all these sort of lower Manhattan type magazines that um, I don't think anybody outside of lower Manhattan ever read, but that were art magazines or literary magazines that he'd tip me off to or whatever. And we'd talk about music. And uh, I remember giving him a tape I had of Pixies demos because he was really into the Pixies, especially around the time when the Tin Machine stuff started. Was there anything that you discovered about him through your conversations that came as a revelation to you, somewhat of a surprise? Yeah. So there's a couple things. things. One is that he was, whenever I spent time with him anyway, he was always super jovial and happy. And I never saw him have a fit about anything or treat anybody badly. He was just always a gentleman. So in a way, you know, there's sort of this uh, idea of the rock star as this very temperamental being, right? You know, I never saw him be like that. And uh, and that was, in a way, kind of a surprise, just because it's not necessarily what you expect of rock stars, not necessarily of him. And uh, the other thing is that he was unbelievably disarming. So I would call him up when we were working on putting together the reissues and I'd say, uh, you know, there, I've got this two versions of this one song and I'd like to put them both on as extra tracks. And, you know, I'd go into the call determined to convince him and I'd and hang up the phone and think, oh, that went great. And then realize that he'd shut me down on two or things. <laughs> and he was just so gregarious and likable and he just knew makes it sound harsh, but how to manipulate people to get what he wanted. I don't mean to say that in the way that it sounds like it's almost like evil. It wasn't at all. He knew what he wanted and he knew how to talk to people and get what his result. I suspect he had a certain charm to him when he talked to you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. One of the most charming people I ever met. He was the most likable person I ever met, I think. Well, you mentioned the Riker issues and I remember reading or hearing that David didn't want to do a reissue because he'd just done the RCA catalog, but he's like, but if you're going to put in other versions, a bonus track, then he was willing to do it. So tell me how you got involved in that project and how that got you on the road to actually meeting David. You know, I was a fan. I was in the you know music business more on the retail side originally, dropped out of art school and moved to Minneapolis, actually, in 1984 to take a job in the music business. I'd always intended to sort of do comics, but this opportunity came up. I was living in Hartford at the time, which was unbelievably boring. At least it was then. And uh, I wanted to get out of town. I was a huge Prince fan. I went to Minneapolis and uh, the retail job turned into a chain store. We opened a bunch of CD stores. And then one of the guys who started Disc was the guy who brought me out there. And I eventually transitioned into uh, working for Ryko. So the catalog was being shopped. The Bowie catalog was being shopped. And we had had some success with the Frank Zappa catalog and a couple of Hendrix projects. For whatever reason, we got on his radar and we spent about two years chasing after it and actually had to negotiate it twice because at the time, he co-owned the catalog with Tony DeFries, his sort of notorious uh, manager from the 70s. And we completed the negotiation with Tony 
and thought we had done the deal. And then he said, now you got to go and negotiate it with David. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think, you know, the reason that he ended up picking us, which is a really crazy and insightful thing for him to do was, you know, we were not a big label. The major labels weren't going to pay the amount of attention to it that we were. And I think he sort of knew at that point that his career was on this bubble where it was really important to make sure that his catalog was presented well so that uh, moving forward, it would always have this, you know, the perceived value. Because some people don't manage their catalogs very well, and it sort of slips away. Um, Not that we were able to do a lot with it, but we had the Zappa catalog. You know, his wife was in charge of the estate after he died. And I don't think that catalog's been managed well at all. And, you know, even the hardcore fans are frustrated with it. Bowie recognized that there was a value to this stuff and making sure that it looked really good and sounded really good. And even though we weren't the biggest company in the world, he saw that we would put the most effort into it. The major labels would just dump it all out in one day as, you know, what they used to call midline price without putting any real care into it because at that point they weren't used to doing that now we live in this world where there's deluxe reissues like that white album you're talking about but back then people were rarely adding stuff to cds and especially catalog cds because their view was hey we can just put it out and people are going to rebuy it um was a different kind of company than that it's a great set i still have mine as you were talking about before the show and one of the greatest tracks on there is the demo of space oddity we're going to do what we can with the material that we now do, and uh, some of it is being considered as single material, but we'll leave that up to you to sort out. Anyway, the first one's called Space Oddity. Go. You know, there's a whole tape that came from about 60 minutes, I want to say, of him doing demos of like really early stuff, Um, things that ended up on the self-titled album, which was also called Space Oddity for Mm -hmm. a while. And it's really beautiful. It's just him and the guitar, but the spoken intro where he says, you know, we hope you like it. I mean, how could you not use that as the opening (laughs) of the box set? I think everything in that box set was not on the reissue discs either i think there were tracks most of them if not all of them were just all separate the tracks that were unreleased tracks up to that point did not appear on the you know let's say the corresponding album so like the box set had a german version of heroes we did not add that as a bonus track to the hero cd there was other material and also we didn't want to make people feel like, oh, you know, you paid a lot of money for this really nice box set and now we're going to take all the exclusive stuff out of it and stick it on the individual releases and devalue the box. Thank you for that. (laughs) Because I bought all the discs too. That was a big part of our pitch to him. You know, RCA, especially at the end when their term was running out and they knew he wasn't going to make more records for him and he became a huge 
global superstar with Let's Dance, they started sticking out these compilations with live photos of him from the Let's Dance tour, making it look like it was some sort of new record. And, you know, fans feel compelled to buy that stuff. And then they kind of hold a grudge against the artist, even though the artist probably didn't have anything to do with it. Well, I appreciate the honesty. You know, the integrity of the work. I really appreciated that. And I still love those albums, especially those rare tracks that I'd never heard before. We talked a lot about David, but I want to talk about you, man, because you got this book coming out, Gunning for Hits. You were working <laughs> on another book that you're writing about Ryko Disc. How are you breaking that down in the chapters? How are you approaching that? I'm doing a lot of interviews right now with lots of Rikodisc employees. And sadly, we just had a semi-reunion a few weeks ago because uh, my partner from Rikodisc in this new record label that I have, Super Megabot, he passed away. And he was someone who had worked at Rikos since like 95, right up to like 2006. We sold it to Warner Brothers and was really wonderful person, Thomas Enright. And he passed away and a whole bunch of people came up uh, to this area uh, where I still live and attended his memorial. And that's the first time most of us have seen each other in the last, you know, almost 20 years. I've been doing a lot of interviews uh, with all of these people who are still alive about their experiences, but I wrote the spine of the book a long time ago. I'm trying to make it something of an oral history because I think people have different perceptions of different events, and that's interesting in and of itself. But uh, I still have a lot of work to do on that, and I'm shooting to get it out next fall, so I... uh, I've got to get going. I'm looking forward to that for sure. But now I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're a busy guy. So let's get to the fun questions I ask all my guests. What do you do for rest and relaxation? I like travel with my family. We do it a lot, but we could always do more. I like to drive up the coast from where I live. I'm north of Boston. I live in Salem, Mass, which city. You can drive right up the coastline up to Cape Ann. And then if you want to loop around and keep going up, you can go up the New Hampshire coastline right into Maine. And that's a beautiful drive. And it's always very relaxing to me. So that and every summer we go up, my cousins have a place up in uh, New Hampshire and we we go swimming up there on this lake. And uh, that's one of the few times in the year where my wife actually says, you seem relaxed. (laughs) My parents took me to Salem uh, when I was a kid in the 70s. And I remember we went to the Salem Witch Museum. Oh, yeah. They would have like mannequins, little displays, and they put a spotlight on each figure and tell a story. Right. And there was a guy who had all these stones on his chest, and they were going to make him confess to being a witch. And yeah, I remember, right. I, I remember him just saying, more weight, more weight. And then you hear like crunch, and I was like, God, that's dark. <laughs> yeah. Is well, that- you know what? <laughs> if you come back to Salem today, the Witch Museum is still there, and it's the same exact thing that you described so <laughs> oh my god it's been decades yeah. giles uh, i can't remember what his name was giles something but yeah more more oh, weight yes <laughs> I, I never forgot that. <laughs> now i think we already talked about what was your favorite birthday it was at the sound and vision tour where you had a chance to meet david that was a really good one obviously for a lot of reasons but there's also when i, I, I can't remember what year it was it was a few years after that there was a birthday where I just I took off by myself and I drove uh, from Minneapolis into Wisconsin and I had a great day. Yeah, I mean, you know, birthdays are usually pretty good. I haven't had any lousy birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you think back to middle school, what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall at the time? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm sure I had music posters, but I couldn't tell you exactly who probably some print stuff 
and probably some Clash stuff. Probably some Generation X stuff. It's hard to remember. I didn't have anyone I was in middle school as far as music went. Maybe stuff like out of an album like ELO, something like that. Mm-hmm. I know in college I had a couple I hung up. One was a poster of Bowie. He's like in a houndstooth-type jacket. Very nice jacket just kind of sitting on a couch. My roommates made fun of me for that. They were not Bowie fans. Okay, I was alone. <laughs> I was alone there. And then I had one of Paul McCartney and Wings from their Greatest Hits album. Oh, okay. And I stuck it up on the wall next to my bed in my dorm. And I was half awake. I was just waking up because the poster was coming off the wall. And here comes Paul McCartney flying at my face. And I freaked out. <laughs> I was like, ah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Weird. I don't know why I thought it. I just, it was a weird experience. Uh, another hypothetical question. You're stuck on a deserted island. You can have one book for pleasure. What is that one book you would want to have with you? Ooh. Uh, it would either be the Martini edition of the Parker stuff, or it would be Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But I'm not sure which one. It's tough to pick just one, I know. <laughs> Yeah, it is hard. And I, uh, yeah, the house is littered with books. And I was just in New York at the Strand, and I'm picking out 10 books that I want to buy and going. I have at least 100 at home that I want to read and look at as much as this one that I haven't even opened yet. So I, I ended up putting them back. I know. I have books I have to read. I get books as gifts. I'm like, okay, got to get to that too. <laughs> it's more to the pile. Yeah, if I could retire right now, I could read until I read brand new stuff that I haven't read until I die, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> Another hypothetical, if a toy company said, Jeff, we're going to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? <laughs> uh, probably a book. There's plenty there, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, sorry, it, it seems like I'm stealing from the previous answer, but I feel like the thing that I'm probably most likely usually seen with is a book, whether it's a blank notebook or some book that I'm reading. Do you like the physical copy of a book versus like an e-edition or a tablet or a Kindle? It depends on what the book is. You know, again, I think this is one of those things like we were talking about earlier with music where formats can sometimes dictate how you appreciate it. Like an art book, I like to have the physical book. But some of the other stuff, novels and things like that, I do find that it's more convenient for sure, to have them as ebooks because A, I can find them, um, and B, the experience doesn't change that much to me. I guess I'm not turning the page and I don't have that, you know, every book weighs the same, but if it doesn't have a big visual component, I feel like I'm still getting the experience. If I travel, I take one book, physical book, in case I don't have power for some reason. And then everything else I load up onto a tablet. That way I've got a lot with me and I can read on the plane or whatever. That sounds like exactly what I do, yeah. Or reading in bed and not keeping anybody else up. (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) What, sir, is your beverage of choice? (laughs) That's funny. Um, If it had no negative impact on me, my drink of choice would probably be Mexican Coca-Cola or there's a lime-flavored Fanta that you can pretty much only get out of those uh, vending machines that they have at the movie theaters where you pour your own drink. Mm -hmm. 
you okay. can like dial it in and they have them at like five guys and stuff, but you can't actually go. I've never been able to find it in the stores in the bottle or anything. Um, but that said, my metabolism isn't what it used to be and I can't be putting a lot of sugar into this uh, body. So um, at the moment, my uh, drink of choice is uh, Coke Zero. I drink that too, Coke Zero. And forget the flavor. I know they have Diet Cokes or Cokes. I think they have Diet Cokes with like different fruit flavors, but I will get lime and just squeeze it and put it in there. Like I like the fresh lime in the soda mm-hmm. versus like the other flavorings added too. So that's a nice little way to make it a fancy drink. That's good, yeah. And it's funny because the lime Fanta is not a very lime flavored. It is as fake lime as it could be. But in a way, that's what's great about it. And my final question, you've done a lot of interviews. What is the one question that someone has not asked you that you want them to ask you? Something you want to share about yourself that people just don't know. Wow. I've never thought about that, I guess. It's funny because there are questions that I'm surprised that people have never asked me, but I don't know if I want to give the answers. (laughs) Okay, well, you can keep those for another interview then. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like no one ever has said, like, what's your favorite record that you ever worked on? And I kind of think I have an answer for that, but I don't know that I do. And it's not fair to all the records anyway. It's like picking your favorite kid. I don't know. Uh, I guess... You know, it would probably be something about the comics. What do you like to read in terms of comics? Because you're working on one now. What's in your reading pile? My reading pile is all over the place. I got, like most people probably, got sucked in with superhero books when I was a kid. And then later on, you know, saw all this other different stuff. When I get into something, I get into it pretty deep. So, you know, I was like, I don't know, 12 years old, perfect comic entry age in the 70s but within like a year of getting into it i had already chased down stuff like star reach and underground comics and you know was seeing a lot of the possibilities for the medium and then when love and rockets the first issue of that came out that really blew my mind and i you know i'm constantly rereading timey stuff from love and rockets it just uh that's an amazing body of work to me so i revisit a lot of stuff but i there's so much new stuff coming out that is different and interesting and i'm just really bored with um superhero comics so i used to spend a lot of money at my comic shop every week buying series that i've been following for years but i don't feel a connection to those characters anymore for whatever reason maybe i'm i've finally grown up who knows (laughs) um but I, i think part of it too is i feel like those characters are being treated like copyrights rather than characters i mean that's a whole nother conversation but i'm not a comic skater in any way but i do think that it's kind of sad that creators aren't encouraged to create new characters in mainstream superhero books because they don't want to give up good ideas to people who will own them forever and i think that's really where you've got a lot of the stagnation in in superhero comics So I'm reading more of image things. I mean, Wicked and Divine is killing me. And I feel like every week there's four or five comics that I just tear into right away. And I'm, of course, drawing a blank right now. But there's a lot of great stuff out there. I mean, I think in terms of selection, it's better than it's ever been. Like you, I mean, I agree that I don't really recognize the heroes I grew up reading, which is okay. That's evolution. And I tend to scour the back issue bins for a lot of that stuff to read books I might have missed back during that period. And I still read a few. There are a few that are standalone, they're not mixed up in a crossover, and there's maybe a new writer on it, has enough of the elements of what I had read in terms of the character's personality, I like it. But I do read a lot more indie books, image books, and not 
really superhero books, a book like yours, Gunning for Hits, was like, oh, this is fantastic. It's got nothing to do with superhero, but this is the medium that's being used to tell this particular story in, in a way that only you can tell it in this particular medium. So I've branched out too, but no means being a comic skater. I wish other people could play with these characters or introduce new characters, but yeah, there's that reluctance. And unfortunately, in some cases, fans just won't give it a shot. And sadly, like some of the songs that don't become hits, the comics don't become hits. And no matter how much you love it, it's still business and the bills have to get paid and it may not go on. Yeah, absolutely. And in that whole shift, and I always took note of who wrote and drew stuff, but I follow artists and writers Mm -hmm. more than I follow characters. Yeah, me too. I do a lot more of that too. I will try out a character I haven't read in a long time because a particular writer or artist is going to work on that book. Absolutely. But Gunning for Hits is going to be a hit. I can feel it. And well, <laughs> it's coming January 9th, the day after David Bowie's birthday. That's right. And the day before, unfortunately, his passing. Yes. But he lives on in spirit through this book. It's a great cover. I love the cover. I'm looking at it right now. And I think folks are going to really like this book. Whether you know anything about Mr. Bowie or not, just the story that's being told about the music industry and the contract negotiations, you've got to see this first issue. You owe it to yourself. Make room in your pile. Make room in your budget for just one more book. This is the one. Awesome. Thank you. Jeff, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. My pleasure. Don't you wonder sometimes Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. I'm looking forward to a great 2019 and reading lots more comics. I've been keeping track of all the comics that I read in 2018 and looking through my notes, I read approximately 430 new comics. Oh, I have lots more that I'm behind on. Digital books, graphic novels, and that's because I'm also reading a lot of Silver Age and Bronze Age comic books that I'm picking up as back issues to fill in my collection. I did manage to get caught up on all of my line Webtoons comics that I've been following and I'm subscribed to, so those are done. It's just the other digital comics that I have and the graphic novels I have to get around to one of these days. And I must get caught up on reading all the books that I have, just regular books. I did read some James Bond books last year, but I do want to read a lot that I have in the pile that I'm just itching to get to and need to make a commitment to get some done each day. But I also had a lot of classic movies on my bucket list I wanted to watch, among them a lot of noir films, and I've watched 43 this year to get caught up, including Out of the Past, Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, Kansas City Confidential, Beware My Lovely, and a bunch of other uh, movies that are not necessarily noir, things like Casablanca, 12 Angry Men, 
and a lot of films either starring or directed by Orson Welles. Just a lot of really fun stuff to watch. And you learn a lot about storytelling and camera angles that has influenced a lot of movie makers today and a lot of storytellers and comic book creators today. And speaking of which, joining me next week will be Gary Whitta and Derek Robertson with the take on the classic Charles Dickens story, Oliver. It is being published through Image Comics and is being released on January 23rd. Please join me then. And meanwhile, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And through Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. There I will post my Saturday Silver Age Spotlight comic and Sunday Bronze Age comic spotlight from my personal collection. And besides including some key panels from the book, any reflections or recollections about obtaining said copy. This year, I will post periodically other non-comic items in my collection. Most of these will be from the Bronze Age. You can reach me through social media, but the best way to get me is through email, and that's contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. The show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, and through YouTube. Subscribe. It's free. Don't miss a single one. And just a reminder to rate and or review the show on iTunes. It's easy. I have placed a link for you in the show notes that goes directly to the show on iTunes. And once again, I want to thank my sponsor for this episode, The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. Thank you for listening. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, a lot of entertainment to select from. Please tell a friend. Spread the word of Creator Talks, the interview podcast with comic book creators, artists, writers, and publishers. Happy New Year's to you and yours. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.